Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. My name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome today Dr. Eric Finkelstein. Eric is a health economist in RTI's Public Health Economics Program in North Carolina. Prior to joining RTI, he was an Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research Fellow and research scientist with the University of Washington's Department of Family Medicine. At RTI, Dr. Finkelstein focuses on the economic causes and consequences of health behaviors, on health behaviors with primary emphasis on behaviors related to obesity. He's published widely in this area, including a very interesting book published in 2008 called The Fattening of America, How the Economy Makes Us Fat, If It Matters, and What to Do About It. So as one scans the landscape, for economists working on obesity, Eric is right at the top of the list of people making important contributions. So Eric, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to have you here. Now at first glance, one may not think intuitively that economics would be an important player in the obesity issue, especially for the people that believe it's totally a matter of personal responsibility, willpower, discipline, and things like that. Why is economics a player here? Well, I think regardless of what people believe as the causes of obesity, the reality is Obesity is a result of behaviors, diet and exercise, and so those behaviors are shaped by the environment, which is how much does food cost, you know, are healthy foods more expensive than unhealthy foods, uh, as the price of our time goes up, do we, you know, tend to work more and not exercise as much, uh, as technology mechanizes activities that used to require physical energy, do we stop engaging in that energy, do we switch jobs, so there's a host of decisions that are basically shaped by economic forces and that ultimately influence our diet and exercise choices. And so economics has a lot to say about why people do or do not gain weight over time. And some of those issues could potentially be matters for public policy to take up. Absolutely. And in fact, there's been a, you know, a hotly contested debate about the role of public policy when it comes to obesity, ranging from, say, subsidies for you know corn and soy-based products to gasoline taxes, to how we engineer our cities, to what we serve our kids in schools, and all of these really have an, an economic component to them. Let's just try to fill out the economic picture a little bit, and then I'll just pick several of the things that you've mentioned. Uh, one would be the subsidies and another things like gas taxes. How would those be affecting uh, people's weight and diets, et cetera? Well, the first thing that, that uh, people may not be aware of is that high fructose corn syrup and hydrogenated fats and oils are, are highly subsidized by the USDA farm policy. And so we use more of those products and we grow more corn and soy than we otherwise would. And foods that have those products are essentially cheaper. And those, of course, are the foods that are essentially most obesity promoting. And so these subsidies certainly, uh, you know, by lowering the price of these foods, cause people to consume more than they would otherwise and certainly may be at least partly responsible for the rise in obesity rates. And so the question is, is it appropriate to have those subsidies given that we have a two-thirds of the population being overweight or obese today? So before we get to the gas tax, which I think will be an interesting thing to hear your thoughts on too, um, would it be fair to say then that, say if one goes to a fast food restaurant and you have a hamburger, well, the cow has been fed with low-cost grain made possible by the subsidies, the french fries will be cooked in an oil that's made from those same subsidized crops, and the beverage that you might buy, if it's a sugared one, will be lower in cost than it might be otherwise because of the subsidies that make things like high fructose corn syrup possible. Is it safe to say then that the government is, is helping people buy such meals compared to alternatives? Let's say they bought a salad at the same fast food restaurant. 
Well, certainly government subsidy policy, and in fact all government policy, has both intended and unintended consequences. And I think it's fair to say that even the best intentioned policies are going to have some unintended consequences. And so if you look at you know, our agricultural policy, I think some of these decisions may make a lot of sense, but they should be considered in light of the obesity epidemic and revisited because at the time these were implemented, we didn't have a two-thirds overweight or obese population. And so maybe they made a lot of sense then, but maybe they don't make so much sense now, and I think that's what our government should be looking at. Okay, so I don't want to spend too much time on specific examples, but you did mention the gas tax, and mm -hmm. I was thinking, listeners, it may, not be it may not be obvious to people why a gas tax might be relevant to something like obesity. How would that be? Well, one of the things that we've seen over the past year and go away to some extent is that as fuel prices skyrocketed, people changed their modes of travel. We saw a lot more people commuting, a lot more people taking alternative modes of transportation. And so, you know, certainly the price of getting to and from work, if it goes up, we might find people changing their behaviors, taking more public transportation, maybe walking or biking. And so that's going to influence our physical activity and potentially our weight as well. So a gas tax could accomplish the same thing, presumably as the spike in prices created by outside factors and make it more attractive for people to walk, bicycle, carpool, do things like that. Absolutely. In fact, the whole economic downturn is not only going to influence, you know, how much money we make at our jobs or have in our wallets, but it's going to influence how we spend our daily lives, including, you know, how much we eat, what types of food we eat, uh, whether we engage in screening activities, whether we engage in more physical activity. And so economic forces really influence our lives in many ways, and certainly obesity is one of those ways. You, you paint a picture of uh, a variety of economic factors that are affecting what people eat and how much they exercise. So it, it, uh, you, you made a good case for why economics Thank is you. so important. Um, so let's talk about your work. Um, first, you've done some uh, perhaps the most definitive work on the, uh, the, the costs, consequences of things like obesity. Can you explain some of what you found? I can. In fact, in the early work, we published a paper that got a lot of attention that showed that the costs of obesity are about 9% of total medical spending, or about $90 billion per year. And in fact, part of the reason it got a lot of attention is because we showed that half of those costs were financed by federal Medicaid and Medicare programs, state and federal programs. And so uh, the implications were that the federal government and the state governments are paying for a lot of the costs resulting from obesity. And therefore, that gives them a seat at the table in trying to figure out what's the appropriate role of public policy in, in encouraging people to be more active and eat healthier and ultimately to lose some weight. So I could see the public. It would be interesting to see what kind of response um, was generated by the attention to your paper. And you could see people reacting in a couple of ways. One way would be to say, oh, well, all these overweight people are costing us all so much money, and isn't that a terrible thing? And um, sort of increase whatever stigma there is already. Um, or one could say, oh my gosh, this is a real problem. Government really does need to get more active in this picture. What kind of responses did you see primarily? All of the above, and then some. And in fact, there were lots of people, uh, overweight or obese individuals, who were certainly uh, you know, not happy about the results of this and thought it was an inappropriate line of research. And you know, I certainly recognize the concerns associated with doing this type of research. But the reality is it energized state, local governments, employers to think about creative ways to reduce obesity rates. And so I mentioned previously that, that everything we do has both intended and unintended consequences. And I think when it comes to obesity prevention and treatment, you really need to weigh both of those. And sometimes I think the reality is things that may be good ideas are going to have some unintended consequences. And in fact, 
one example that I talk about in the book that I think is worth discussing is BMI report cards for kids, which is a hot topic. And that's a case where they, some schools have decided they're going to give parents information about their kids' BMI and some recommended strategies. And in fact, I'll give you an example. Uh, when Mike Huckabee was the governor of Arkansas, he instituted BMI report cards uh, and thought it was an effective strategy. And then the new governor, Beebe, came in and stopped it because he said some kids were being stigmatized. And I'm sure he was right, but the question is on net, is it better to have a program where some kids are going to be stigmatized but other kids are going to be helped, or to not have a program uh, where nobody will be stigmatized but nobody will be helped? And I think that's really, you know, economists always say there's no such thing as a free lunch, and I think this is a classic example of that. Well, it shows the example of doing careful research when those sort of programs get Absolutely. implemented. And so often there are programs but no evaluation of them, and that would be nice if that problem got corrected. Now, when one calculates the, if you think about people existing in an environment that's um, encouraging them to eat a poor diet, be physically inactive, and develop various problems like obesity, and then an economist like you wants to look at the total cost to society, what sort of factors do you have to consider? Because I know healthcare costs are one, and then, then that's complicated itself, but, but it, people kind of understand that it's heart attacks and blood pressure sure. and all those sort sure. of things. But there's more to the overall cost picture, like work issues and things, isn't there? It's complicated, and there are some costs that are hard to measure but easy to understand. And medical costs is probably the easiest one. And people understand that as your obesity rate goes up, your risk of disease goes up, and so your costs go up. Another one that I think is pretty easy to understand is absenteeism. Employers are very concerned about absenteeism rates and people being absent from work. And so we've done some work and quantified the absenteeism costs to work sites. Presenteeism is basically being less productive on the job, perhaps because you're feeling less healthy and you're taking more time to manage your health or you have depression or other factors. And very tough to measure, but people have been looking at this. And so those are sort of the, the direct or indirect costs associated with obesity or related diseases. But another thing that economists are very interested in is, is what we call the, it's a cost, but it's essentially the cost of engaging in behaviors that may be health promoting, but that people don't really like to do. And so there's a cost associated with diet and exercise. There's also a great benefit. But the question that economists often ask is, uh, for some individuals, is it possible that the costs associated with engaging in a healthy lifestyle are just too high, even with the benefits of a healthier lifestyle that some people may just not be interested? Right. And so when you talk about cost, examples would be um, people choosing not to be physically active. But <clears throat> the, the choice to be physically active means that's time you're not doing something else like being with your family or relaxing or working or whatever it would happen to be. And so I think <clears throat> when you're, you mention the cost, there are those sort of things. That's right. In fact, there's a question that I often ask, and I don't really know the answer. You may have some thoughts on this, on whether people actually like or dislike being physically active. I know some people love to play sports, but a lot of people do physical activity, even though they hate it, because they recognize it's a necessary evil if they want to be healthy. So there's a cost, but for them, the benefit outweighs the cost. Now, for other individuals, and in fact, the fact that nearly one in four adults are completely sedentary suggests that for them maybe the costs are just too high. You know, as an aside, I heard an exercise epidemiologist once say that if you add up the additional uh, months and years of life that one get, gains by being physically active, it is just about the amount of time you spent doing all the physical activity. Um, and so from that point of view, you'd think, well, it's not worth doing. But of course, then all that time you spent being healthier and more vigorous and all those sort of things 
during the time you were alive is, is something worth something to many people. It, it is, but it's not an aside. I mean, for economists, this is really the critical question. It's what are people willing to do and what do they need to get in return in order for them to make sustained changes in behavior? And as you and I both know, uh, and all your listeners know as well, the environment is not helping the cause. And so the environment has changed in such a way that it's just a lot more expensive or a lot more costly in economic terms to be healthy today than it was a few decades back and certainly a few centuries back. And so economists wouldn't be surprised and certainly would predict that if the cost of being healthy or being thin go up, you'll see less thinness, which is exactly what we've seen. Okay. So you've painted a beautiful picture of the economic complexities of this issue and how people make decisions, how they're influenced by the environment, and how they're, they weigh pros and cons of all these kind of decisions that occur in their life related to lifestyle. So you've thought about this um, in great detail, and you've written about this extensively. Do you think there's a role for economic intervention in trying to deal with problems like obesity and diet and uh, what sort of actions do you think might be justified or might not be justified, given your work? Absolutely. And in fact, one of the things people may not be aware of, if, if you look back at tobacco, perhaps the single, and not, not perhaps, I would say for sure, the single greatest intervention, greatest effective intervention was the cigarette tax, for example. So as the price of cigarettes went up, people smoked less. Now, I'm not in favor of a fat tax or a food tax per se, but I the point is that if you change the landscape and make it cheaper and easier to be thin, people will change behavior and engage in more activities associated with thinness. So I think economics is the key to getting people to change their behavior, especially when it comes to diet and exercise behaviors. Now, I think the key question that, that you're raising is who's willing to spend the money to change the landscape and what landscape should we change and who should we target? And in fact, I do talk about a lot of these issues in the book. Uh, and in fact, I have a study, a very s simple study, and it's a pilot. We have a longer study going now where we paid people about $7 a pound to lose weight. And we show that over a three-month period, that tends to work as well as Weight Watchers in getting people to lose weight. Now, I will say nobody loses money because you give them 7 bucks a pound, but that $7 motivates some people to go out and do some things that they wouldn't have done otherwise, and it's those factors that help them to lose some weight. Uh, but the reality is that's not a particularly compelling intervention on a public health scale. And so the question I think you're asking is what should government do or what should employers do to try to uh, encourage people to change their behaviors, and as I'm arguing, they're going to have to do things that make it easier and cheaper to be thin. Okay. So there's a few things. First off, I would say employers clearly have a financial motivation to try to address obesity in the work site, and they're doing some things on a small scale, but I think there's a lot more that can be done. Uh, we talk about changes in the cafeteria that essentially promote and subsidize the healthier foods at the expense of the less healthy foods, so a tax subsidy policy. And I mentioned earlier, I'm not sure this is a great idea on a, on a federal perspective, but certainly for an employer who's profit-maximizing, I think that's something that they should certainly consider. Uh, any strategies that subsidize the cost of physical activity should be effective as well and potentially cost-effective, but that remains to be seen. So I think those sorts of low-cost employer-based strategies are, are something to consider. Before you move on, could I ask a question about what you just <coughs> said? You mentioned that an, an, an employer might have an incentive to change the relative costs mm -hmm. of various foods in the cafeteria so that healthy foods might cost less and the unhealthy choices cost more. So if that principle applies in a corporate setting, why wouldn't it, why wouldn't it or maybe it does, apply at the national setting? Why wouldn't government want to do the same thing? Well, that's a great question and somewhat complicated, but th the short answer is that employers are 
clearly profit maximizers, certainly most are. And so we would expect them to engage in profit maximizing behaviors. The federal government, I'm not exactly sure what their objectives are, but we know it's not profit maximization. Uh, and we know it's not sort of cost minimization either because they certainly don't seem to minimize costs. And so you have to figure out exactly what they're trying to do. And sometimes I think, well, they're trying to make, make their population as healthy as possible. But that, too, isn't necessarily a great thing to do because, as we said earlier, some people uh, would prefer to engage in risky behaviors uh, knowing that there are the full risks. And so the question of whether or not it's appropriate for government to interfere on behalf of individuals in that setting isn't, isn't very clear to me. But let me make one other comment and, and then try to get back to this question because this is a complicated question. I made the case earlier that uh, obesity costs Medicare and Medicaid lots of money. Well, if you're, if you're only concerned about the high cost of obesity, what that would suggest is that the government should only fund interventions that are cost-saving, that essentially save more money than they cost. Uh, otherwise, your taxes would go up even more. And in fact, from a public health perspective, there are no cost-saving obesity interventions. There are very few even effective interventions, let alone cost-saving. And I think you and I would both agree that saving money shouldn't be the role of government. We should, you know, try to get value for our money. So the government want us, wants to spend money on things that they think have good value. But employers who are profit maximizers, return on investment and cost savings is part and parcel to what they do. So that's, I don't know if that's helpful at all, but I think mm -hmm. that's trying to give you this distinction between what employers care about and what governments care about. You know, one thing you said was that um, one could question government being involved in this because there are people who are just making the choice to exercise little and, and eat certain foods and things like that. I mean, if that if that's a perspective one takes, then wouldn't you, wouldn't, I mean, it would be silly, of course, for government to do things to intentionally encourage that kind of behavior. Nobody would support that sort of thing. But so why wouldn't government then say, well, we, we don't believe people should be inactive and we don't believe that we should do things to encourage unhealthy eating. So why don't we do the opposite? Why don't we do things that make it easier for people to be physically active? And why don't we do things to encourage healthy eating? And then a whole lot of public policy things might fall from that. Well, I think this essentially boils down to on what you think the role of government is. Economists have a simple answer for the role of government. Economists think that the government should be there to solve what we call market failures, to do the things that the private sector can't do. Uh, but economists would also argue, at least the classical economists that, I'm, that I've studied, that obesity in and of itself is not necessarily a problem or a market failure. It's a natural response to a changing economy, which in large part is created by consumer demand and suppliers supplying what consumers want. And so if consumers really want to be sedentary and eat lots of junky, fattening food, and the market has responded and there are no market failures, classical economists would say, we don't, we don't see the problem. And if that's true, then they would say, we don't see a role for government. Okay. So you, I, I distracted you because you were talking about some of the things that you thought might be helpful economic interventions. And you mentioned the subsidies, you mentioned worksite interventions, and I might have interrupted you before you came to the end of your list. And well, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to say more if there were some things. No, I'm glad we, we sidetracked because I think this discussion of market failures is a great segue into the appropriate role of government. And in fact, I think there are lots of things that the government can be doing, uh, even if you believe this market failure approach. But I think the, the, the easiest sell for where the, 
the market failure approach breaks down is with respect to kids. Kids clearly are not rational thinkers, and they clearly are not able to what economists call utility maximize, think about the costs and benefits of their actions. And in fact, that's why we force kids to go to school, and we don't let them smoke cigarettes, and we don't let them consume alcohol. But when they become adults, we let them do all of those things. And so for food consumption and physical activity, it, it, I would basically say we failed our kids. I mean, we've let our kids fatten up. Parents and government have failed our kids. And the reality is, you know, I would make the argument if a well-intentioned kid wants to become an adult and engage in a lifestyle that leads to uh, excess weight, if they do that with good information and they're doing that because they don't like to diet and exercise and maybe they're doing other things that they do like, uh, I'm not convinced that's a problem for me. But the reality is excess weight as a kid has long-term health consequences and is very difficult to undo. And so for that reason alone, we should, from an economic perspective, from a public health perspective, and from just a common sense perspective, we should be doing everything we can to encourage our kids to lead healthy lives. And when they become adults, they can make their own choices. But right now, the environment is not conducive for healthy lifestyles for kids across the country. And I would say parents and government have failed in that respect. So what are your ideas for what might be done with kids? Or, or well, to certainly, uh, as you know, you mentioned we, the subsidies. I mentioned the subsidies. Schools is a place where kids spend a good chunk of their day. And the schools are basically, in large part, not places of healthy living. We serve junky foods. Uh, we have vending machines. The school nutrition school environment is not particularly good. Physical activity, in large part, to No Child Left Behind has been pushed out of the schools, and in fact, even if it's there, it's not particularly effective. After-school programs are not particularly well supported, and so the schools, I think, is a natural place where we should be educating our kids about healthy lifestyles and walking the talk, and really testing them, in my mind, no different than No Child Left Behind, where kids are held to the same standards as they are for their regular classes, and, you know, I think that we need to basically put our money where our mouth is and say, we're not going to let the, you know, the soda companies or whoever profit off of our kids' health, we'll push those out of the schools and we'll eat the costs. And I think that's a place where we really should be focusing a lot of our energy. Okay, certainly makes sense. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk another about some more recent work that you've done that, okay. that I find very interesting and it has to do with possible discrimination against overweight people in the workplace. Um, you know, share with us, if you will, what you've uh, been looking at in that domain and what your feelings are about that topic. I will. Let me just give you, by way of background, there's really no national protection at the federal level against workplace discrimination for obese individuals. In fact, in most states in the country and municipalities, my understanding is it's perfectly legal to discriminate against obese people in hiring and firing decisions and in setting wages. Uh, employers are free to do that at will. A few places, such as San Francisco or Michigan, have actual uh, statutes on the books that, that bar this, but most don't. And so the question that we were concerned with was, you know, are additional protections necessary to present, prevent uh, employers from discriminating against overweight or obese workers? And in fact, some of your uh, prior work and some work from others suggests that overweight and obese individuals, and especially women, certainly feel as though they've been discriminated against in the workforce. And in fact, one thing I can tell you is if you look at wage differentials across genders and across BMI, what you find is that obese women earn lower wages uh, than normal weight women. And that certainly could be the result of discrimination. Not necessarily, but it could be. And so we've been doing some analyses lately, Justin Trogdon, a co-author and I at RTI, 
trying to look at the question of whether or not overweight or obese individuals are more likely to be discriminated on in the workforce. And we focused on two areas. One is involuntary job turnover, such as firings or uh, forced layoffs. And in fact, we also looked at voluntary job turnover under the hypothesis that if, if obese individuals feel like they're going to have a tougher time in the job market, they might be less likely to leave their current job. And basically, we conducted analyses using some national representative data sets, and we were unable to find any evidence of workplace discrimination on these two factors. This isn't to say that it doesn't exist, but certainly we couldn't find it. And then we speculated on some of the reasons why that might be the case. And what, would, what are some of the reasons? Well, uh, one might be that you, you might make the argument if, if employers are discriminating on wages and they are, say, for example, offering, lower wa or offering women lower wages, uh, then they might not want to fire them, right? Because they're paying them less money, they're a better deal. And so maybe they're discriminating on wages and so they don't need to discriminate on, on firing. So that's one possibility. Certainly another possibility is there is no workplace discrimination. And in fact, uh, there may be some, some good justification to think that's the case, given that we're at a point where two out of three potential workers is overweight or obese. It's pretty costly to discriminate in today's environment. Maybe they would have liked to in decades or years past, but they just can't anymore. So that's another possibility. And so. Uh, it's it's hard to definitively say which of these is going on, but we just couldn't find any evidence. And so the question is, given this lack of evidence, is there a justification for additional protections against obese workers? And our, our paper says, well, we don't see the evidence to support it at this time. Right. You know, something that came to my mind as you were, you were talking about the term job turnover is I wonder if... Um, the, if you get two offsetting things that cancel each other out, you get people who feel discriminated against, if it exists in the workplace, um, who would, would be more likely to leave jobs because of the bad treatment they feel they're getting or the underpayment and things, but on the other hand may feel more compelled to stay because they fear discrimination in other places. And I wonder if these two couldn't cancel each other out. As we've talked about, obesity is complicated and there are so many factors at play. Now, it, in our study, we looked at voluntary and involuntary job turnover separate. So we should be able to tease those two out. Had we looked at total job turnover, I think that would be problematic. But even so, there are so many nuances be behind why people decide to leave or to get fired from jobs. And in fact, uh, it may be that obese workers you know, self-select into jobs where they think they're going to have a better chance of not getting fired. Or uh, There's a recent paper that shows that uh, overweight or obese workers who work in jobs that have more interactions with the public are more likely to take a wage hit uh, than those who work in jobs where they're more likely to be in an office. And so it may be self-selection into different types. Lots of, lots of complications in trying to do this kind of research. You could see that. So if you think about the, think of almost a timeline of somebody going into a work setting and then either remaining there or not, there are so many steps along the way where there, there could or may, may not be discrimination. And you've picked one of them that I think hadn't been studied before, or at least not very much, the turnover issue and um, retention and stuff like that. One can go back earlier into the, the employment chain and look at whether there's discrimination against overweight people in education, and that would affect how qualified they would be for jobs. There's the initial decision about who to hire, which I think is probably very greatly influenced by physical appearance and things. 
their performance evaluations that people get on the job, their raises versus not having raises, all these sort of things end up in this big chain of events. And you studied a, a particularly interesting slice of it and didn't find discrimination there. Be interesting to see at each phase of this whether there's discrimination or not. Because and, and it could be that there is discrimination in some places but less so in others. And that would give you a sense of if you were to intervene and do something with the law where it would make most sense to focus your attention. Absolutely. And in fact, I mentioned there's been a series of laboratory studies where they've set up examples where somebody goes in and looks at resumes or interviews candidates. And in every aspect of hiring and firing and selection in these laboratory studies, weight mattered in people's preferences or choices for who they would choose. So you certainly might expect these things to matter. Um, you're absolutely right. In fact, we, we are looking at another paper right now that goes back and looks at the education decision of individuals as a function of their weight. And in fact, the idea is if you're overweight or obese in, in high school or thinking about going to college and you believe that you're going to be discriminated against in employment, you may decide to go into a different profession or not get as much education. And so uh, actual discrimination matters, but certainly uh, perceptions about discrimination matter as well. And all of these factors uh, are relevant when people make choices. Now, one thing I, I do want to point out and there's some evidence of this after the Americans with Disabilities Act was put into place. We talked previously about unintended consequences. Well, uh, what the American Disabilities Act basically said was that you need to offer people with disabilities basically the same wages and the same uh, potential for, for hiring as people who, who don't have disabilities. And after the law went into place, there were actually some perverse effects because people basically said, I'm not going to hire disabled workers because I don't want to have to, you know, re-engineer my worksite and pay them the same wages. And so it's certainly possible, I mentioned previously, that there is this wage offset between normal and obese workers, mostly female workers, that may be the underlying cause behind why they're not discriminated against in other factors. And so I'm not saying it's good or bad to implement these laws. All I'm saying is if you put a law in place and you force these individuals to get equal wages. And, and keep in mind, the wage differential certainly could be because of the evidence that they have more absenteeism and higher medical expenditure. So total compensation could be the same. But once you put a law in place, it may be more expensive to hire these individuals. And we actually could see more discrimination. And so just some things to keep in mind. It's very interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you for joining us. And congratulations for doing such interesting and important work. And I've often thought that economists could bring to bear a whole new way of thinking about these issues and could potentially come up with some very good and powerful ideas of, of ways to help solve some of these problems. So I'm delighted that bright people like you are working on it, and, and thank you for sharing that with us today. Thanks for having me. So our guest today was Dr. Eric Finkelstein, a health economist from RTI's Public Health Economics Program um, and a well-known figure in, in studying the economics of diet and obesity and the author of a book published in 2008 called The Fattening of America, How the Economy Makes Us Fat, If It Matters, and What to Do About It. Um, please visit our website, Rudd Center website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter on food policy and obesity, um, a blog to take part in, and of course a list of the other podcasts where we've had uh, excellent visitors come to join us. Thank you.